Well, good evening. I'm Wendy Luger, the university librarian, and how wonderful to see you all here this evening. Very special event that we've been anticipating with great excitement. The second Paul and Joanne Nagel lecture featuring Richard Moe, whose most recent book is Roosevelt's Second Act. Now, Mr. Moe served as chief of staff to then Vice President Walter Mondale, so in a minute, who better to introduce him than the boss? Uh, great, great that we could have both gentlemen here. But before we begin this program this evening, I want to thank in particular our friends of the University of Minnesota Libraries for sponsoring this event. Uh, they are our trusted ambassadors. They help us in celebrating learning and also the critical role that libraries play in the intellectual life of the university. Their generous support allows us to bring a remarkable array of writers and poets and opinion leaders to our stage, and tonight is no exception. If you aren't a friend, we'll later give you a pitch to join, because it's important. I also want to thank our co-sponsors, the Hubert H. Humphrey School of Public Affairs and the Minnesota Historical Society. The Paul and Joanne Nagel Lecture Series was created to honor Dr. Nagel, who was an active member of the Friends of the Libraries, and his wife, Joanne. Paul was a former university professor, an administrator, a provost, director of the Virginia Historical Society, a senior trustee of Colonial Williamsburg Foundation, a public historian, and a best-selling author of several books, including three on the family of John and Abigail Adams. He was honored in 2010 with a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Adams Institute, joining David McCullough and the late Senator Edward Kennedy as the only three people to receive this award. Joanne Nagel, an accomplished genealogist and a librarian, was Paul's collaborator on so many projects. And together they made a significant impact on our university, on our libraries, and so much more. And we honor their contributions in the event this evening. Now it was Hubert Humphrey who once claimed that being vice president is like being naked in the middle of a blizzard with no one to even offer you a match to keep warm. As it turns out, this did not describe the vice presidency of Walter Mondale, one of the most influential figures in the Carter White House and one of the strongest vice presidents in American history. Born in Ceylon, Minnesota, he grew up admiring Franklin D. Roosevelt. You're gonna see a theme here. And after college in the Army, he learned a law degree from the University of Minnesota, became attorney general here in this state, and then filled Humphrey's Senate seat when he became Lyndon Johnson's vice president. As one historian described it, being admired, trusted, and promoted by other politicians is a familiar pattern in Mondale's career. There are so many accolades that describe Vice President Mondale that it's hard to know which to mention, but here's one. He scored a decisive victory over Republican counterpart Bob Dole in the first first ever vice presidential debate, and another. He made history by naming New York Representative Geraldine Ferraro as his first running mate in 1994 presidential run, the first woman on a presidential ticket. And after a long career in service to his country, President Clinton named Walter Mondale the U.S. Ambassador to Japan, a post he held until 1996. Throughout his career, Vice President Mondale has maintained strong ties to the University of Minnesota Law School, and in 2002, the law school named its building after Walter Mondale. So who better to introduce our speaker tonight? I repeat that. Please join me in welcoming Walter Mondale. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Wendy, for those kind words. 
I'm <coughs> delighted to be here tonight to honor Dick and Julia Moe, dear old friends, uh, rooted in Minnesota and a part of the, the fullest part of uh, intellectual and public life in America. Uh, Richard Moe is a local. He's from Duluth, Minnesota. And when I became vice president, somebody came up to me and said, now look, none of this local stuff anymore. You've got to have a balanced national staff, north and south. So I did. I hired two people from Duluth, and I hired somebody from Blue Earth, Minnesota, <laughs> and, and north and south, balanced. And Dick Moe uh, headed the whole thing. He was the head of my staff when I was uh, United States Senator, and he was the head of my staff when I was Vice President. Uh, uh, and he was a crucial part of the discussion that led to becoming Vice President. Uh, I said, not entirely uh, honestly, that I wasn't too interested in the Vice Presidency. And I had a long talk with Dick, and we, just, we, we took some steps to make certain that it would be what would work. And then Dick wrote a memo, known as the Bo Memo, even today, which almost has the status of, of statutory law or constitutional law about what the elements of an effective vice president by presidential relationship would be. And that, that was what I gave to Carter, and that's what proved to be the outline of what we did. And now every new vice president calls me and say, where's that memo? <laughs> and it's been used by everyone and abused by a few. Uh, uh, Dick was not only uh, indispensable to my public life, but also was crucial in a, uh, to uh, Jimmy Carter's role as President of the United States. Um, after the public decided it was time for us to go home and terminate public life, uh, Dick went out and made an honest living as a lawyer, and then wrote the book the Last Full Measure, The Life and Death of the First Minnesota Volunteers, one of the great books written about Minnesota history and the Civil War. I don't know how many of you have not read it here, but if you're associated with Minnesota history, get a copy of the book. It's still uh, in print. It's still one of the single best uh, histories of the Civil War. Um, and in the course of pre preparation of that book, Dick went around to many of the Minnesota uh, County Historical Societies and dug out the letters, the articles, and papers uh, that had been sitting in the dust there for 100 years and helped build a history of that time that had a strength and a personal connection that's hard to duplicate. And um, this was the first war, as you point out in your book, where many of the soldiers could write letters. And they would write letters home, and many of them ended up in their county libraries where they were ignored for all that time. Dick dug them out, allowed them to live again, and it has created a remarkable book it helps us really understand uh, Minnesota, Minnesota history. Uh, as you know, he developed a deep interest in historic preservation. For 12 years, was the president of the National uh, what he, Foundation for his Trust for Historic uh, uh, Preservation, and he he brought that thing to life. And they they not only saw new ways of trying to make historic preservation relevant to all of us, but he actually got out and got historians to help him fight things like 
Disney's attempt to develop a, um, a Disney World presentation outside of one of the historic Civil War sites in uh, Virginia. And he was down in uh, New Orleans following that tragedy to make certain that as we rebuilt uh, that part of the country that we paid uh, full attention to the needs of historic uh, preservation. Uh, he, he has, of course, many, many firsts to his name. He served on the Ford Foundation board, prestigious board for over 12 years. He was uh, active across the country in a whole host of uh, historical efforts. And finally, he's written the book that brings us together here today, uh, Roosevelt's Second Act, The Election of 1940, and the Politics of War. Uh, I've read the book. If you haven't read the book, you must read it. Uh, do I get a commission? Yeah. Uh, it, it's, it's, it, I had not realized what a challenge it was for Roosevelt to move this country that had been so deeply scarred by World War I, uh, traumatized by the deep depression, and wholly unready for war against the Nazis. And yet he, he knew that somehow he had to steer us in that direction because he could see what was happening in Europe. Uh, he was for, his hand was forced uh, when the war broke out in 1939 by having to supply destroyers to uh, Great, Britain. Great Britain. The, um, the huge isolationist part of American public life uh, reacted very violently and powerfully against that move. And he also developed Lend-Lease during a time when we weren't sure we wanted to get involved, yet we had to do something. And he didn't dare move until it, it was more possible to do so. In the meantime, he had to decide whether he was running, going to run again for president, the first and only American to seek a third term. It was a rough choice because this powerful isolationist sentiment in the United States was arrayed against any possibilities to, for going to war. There was, there was a, a large uh, cross-section of, you might say, legitimate isolationists and others who had other motivations underpinning it. And one of the leaders of the isolationist movement was Charles Lindbergh. And in this, in this book, there's a careful analysis of Lindbergh's unique role in opposition to our entering into the war. And uh, it, it, that also deserves to be read by Minnesotans because in fairness to Lindbergh, who I've never met, uh, he was not the person that we idolize in our memories now. And he, he played a particularly, I would say, disturbing role in that period leading up to World War II that does not live well in history. Uh, Dick's book is unique and powerful and helps us understand in a in a compelling way, the, what, what happened here as America, under Roosevelt's leadership, made this move away from what we were into becoming the overwhelming source of strength and leadership that defeated the ugly uh, Axis powers. Uh, so Dick is with us tonight. Again, <coughs> we hope he'll talk about that book. Dick? <laughs> Thank you, my friend. Thank you. Thank you. <coughs> Thank you, Mr. Vice President. 
Uh, I'm deeply honored uh, that you should uh, be introducing me tonight. Uh, someone who's played such an important role in my life uh, and who I was so proud to be associated with for more than 50 years. I'm going to I'm going to tell you a bit more about this uh, in a few minutes. But first of all, I want to say how pleased I am, Wendy, to have been asked to deliver the Nagel lecture. Uh, this is a high honor. I hoped to be here a year ago, but you but but uh, my health would not permit it. Uh, but you've been forbearing, and I appreciate it. It's a great honor to be back here, uh, uh, sponsored by the libraries of the University of Minnesota and the friends of the libraries of the University of Minnesota. Great libraries, great cause, uh, and it means a lot. I just, uh, by all accounts, Paul Nagel was an outstanding historian uh, who taught us much, among other things, about the remarkable Adams family. And he himself was a great friend of the libraries, and I, I wish I'd known him. I also want to thank uh, the Hubert Humphrey School for Public Affairs, where we are tonight, uh, and the Minnesota Historical Society, both organizations with whom I've had long and very happy associations over the years, uh, for their co-sponsorship of this, of this event. But it really is a very special honor uh, to be introduced by this man uh, that I have known for 50 years and come to know very well. Uh, it is, uh, <clears throat> there's no question, but as we all know, uh, he's had uh, a very distinguished record of public service, probably the most, one of the most distinguished in Minnesota history. Attorney General, U.S. Senator, Vice President of the United States, nominee of his party for president, U.S. Ambassador to Japan. Uh, it's all enormously impressive. But I would suggest that the true measure of someone uh, engaged in public life is not how high he has risen, or how many elections he has won, but rather what he has brought to the task in terms of character and commitment to fundamental principles. Principles such as human rights, social justice, and just plain decency in public affairs. That embodiment of what I would call Minnesota values is precisely what stands out brightly in Walter Mondale's record. <clears throat> <laughs> I'm going to have to tilt a bit because I need some light on my, my notes here. Uh, don't, don't think that I'm not paying attention to you on the right here. Uh, Fritz will have many legacies from this remarkable uh, record, but I would argue that perhaps the most significant, and he's already re referred to it, and the most lasting, is what he and Jimmy Carter did to reshape the vice presidency into truly the second most important position in our government. Together, they took a much maligned and neglected office that had been a constitutional afterthought and transformed it into a huge asset, not only for the presidency, uh, but for the nation. For the first time in history, a president gave his vice president full access to the Oval Office and to the White House information flow so he would have a trusted and informed advisor across the board. He gave Fritz an office just down the hall from his own and told his cabinet and staff to respond to a request from the vice president as if it came from him, the president. Unheard of. It was a revolutionary change, and it made a huge difference in the authority that Fritz Mondale carried in the Congress and abroad, as well as in his ability to affect public policy. I saw this firsthand many times. President Carter sent Fritz to meet Prime Minister Botha of South Africa to convey in person the moral authority of America in its steadfast opposition to apartheid, which helped lead to the collapse of that cruel policy. The President sent him to Israel to persuade a reluctant Prime Minister, Menachem Begin, to come to Camp David to try to reach a Middle East peace settlement with Anwar Sadat of Egypt. Begin finally came. And the, re and the result was the most important peace agreement in modern times in that war-plagued region, one that has lasted 35 years. When Fritz saw that the refugees were fleeing from Vietnam in small boats and dying by the hundreds in the South China Sea in a vain attempt to get to Australia or anywhere else, he was stunned to learn that it was the policy of the U.S. Navy not to pick them up, uh, no matter how desperate their plight. It wasn't their mission, he was told. 
Well, he went everywhere in the government, the State Department, <clears throat> the, the Defense Department, the National Security Advisor, to try to find one good reason why that policy shouldn't be reversed. And he couldn't find it. Then he went to the president and made his case. The policy was reversed, and probably thousands of lives were saved. Fritz used his new influence judiciously, but when he used it, he went all in. The modern vice presidency, which he and Carter created, is now a virtually permanent feature of the federal government, as he suggested. Every subsequent administration has used some variation of the Mondale model of the vice presidency. And I fully expect that will continue simply because it makes so much sense. So I thank you, Fritz, for all that you have done and are still doing during this remarkable lifetime and for, for reminding us every step of the way what Minnesota values are all about. It's been an honor and a privilege to serve you. It's been an even greater honor and privilege to be your friend. Thank you and God bless you. I can't be in this hall without, without also expressing uh, my debt to Hubert Humphrey. He too had a huge influence on me, uh, but my first experience with him was almost my last. In 1960, uh, when he was running for re-election to the Senate, I was driving him to a plant gate, and I was so nervous to be in the presence of this great man that I almost drove him into a telephone pole. <laughs> Where would the School for Public Affairs be then? Right. <laughs> Fortunately, he was a very forgiving man. Uh, in a much happier experience, I was very lucky to be state DFL chairman when he was running for the Senate again in 1970, and we spent a lot of time together. He was enormously kind and generous uh, to a young man who didn't know very much about uh, the business of politics at that point, and he too became a generous mentor. Uh, it's, a wonderful, it's a wonderful honor to be in this school that is such an important part of his legacy. Hubert and Fritz, of course, were heavily influenced by the example and politics of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and therefore, so were many of us. Almost everywhere I went as state DFL chairman, whether it was miners' halls in the Iron Range, farmhouses in western Minnesota, or union halls here in, in, uh, in Minneapolis, I would see pictures of FDR on the walls a quarter century after he had died. He still had such a hold on people, and he came to have a hold on me. I was very fortunate, therefore, <clears throat> to have stumbled onto, this, onto one of the most consequential but largely ignored stories of American history, FDR's decision to run for an unprecedented third term in 1940 when America was on the verge of war. The story was all the more compelling to me because my own White House experience, thanks to Fritz Mondale, caused me to be especially interested in presidential leadership and presidential decision-making. And that's what this story is all about. But I didn't really understand FDR until I started this research. Someone who did understand FDR uh, was Frances Perkins, who was the first woman to serve in any president's cabinet, Secretary of Labor for, FDR, for uh, Franklin Roosevelt. Uh, and here's what she had to say about him. Franklin Roosevelt was not a simple man. That quality of simplicity which we delight to think marks the great and noble was not his. He was the most complicated human being I ever knew. And out of this complicated nature, there sprang much of the drive which brought achievement. Now, there have been th literally thousands of books written about Franklin Roosevelt, probably more than any other president except Abraham Lincoln. Uh, why do we need another one? That's a fairly good question. Well, almost all of those books have been written about either the New Deal years or the World War II years when he presided over that war. Almost nothing has been written about, about the connective tissue between those two epical events. Uh, the, uh, and that was the election of 1940. How did, he, how did he make the transition from one to the other? From 1939 to 1940, he tried to prepare the country for the war that he knew was coming to the United States. He just instinctively knew it was coming once it started in Europe. And he tried to ensure that his successor in the White House was someone who, could, who would support both his New Deal and his foreign policies and who could win the election of 1940. 
I tried to get into his head, but it was very hard because he was a very private individual. He was a very solitary individual. He wrote no memoir, of course, because he didn't survive his presidency. And he wasn't always candid in talking to friends and colleagues. And he didn't have, as I'll explain, didn't have many intimate friends. So just set the scene in September of 1939. Uh, he was in the midst of his, sec his uh, second term. He was suffering from what we've come to call the second term curse. Uh, in fact, he may have invented the second term curse. Because after his landslide election of 1936, he seriously overreached the mandate that he had. Uh, he got involved with the court packing plan, took his foot off the economic acceler accelerator and caused another recession, tried to purge recalcitrant Democrats in the 1938 elections, and he failed in all of these efforts. So he was at the low point in his presidency, both in terms of public opinion and his relationship with Congress. The New Deal had run its course. Uh, there wasn't a, any a great demand or interest in, in future federal funding for, for the kinds of programs that he had established during the New Deal. He was already shifting his own gears uh, to foreign policy in Europe. He had planned to retire to Hyde Park after two terms. It was, the, it was obviously the custom uh, of, all few, of all presidents to, to retire after, after two terms. This is the precedent set by George Washington and Thomas Jefferson. And it had the force almost of law. Uh, you, didn't, you didn't try for more than two terms. Only two individuals tried, uh, Ulysses S. Grant and Teddy Roosevelt, and they both failed. Uh, so it was, uh, it was sacrosanct, so it seemed. Uh, he was going to retire <coughs> to Hyde Park. He told his friends he was tired and he was broke. And in fact, he was both. Uh, he, he had already designed and was then building uh, the first presidential library uh, in the country, this at Hyde Park, and this was going to be his headquarters during his retirement. Uh, every time he went back to Hyde Park, he took boxes full of files and documents and artifacts for his library. Uh, he, had written, he had signed a uh, very lucrative contract with Collier's Magazine to, to writ, write regular articles, and he was going to write his memoirs to make some money. There were some quiet rumbles about the possibility of a third term, but nobody paid serious attention to them, including FDR. Then in September of 1939, Hitler invaded Poland. Uh, Hitler had already swallowed the, wine, the Rhineland, Austria, Sudetenland, and then the rest of Czechoslovakia. Uh, Britain and, and France uh, declared war, as they had threatened to do if Hitler invaded Poland. So the war had come. Uh, to FDR, and this is really where the story starts. He struggled to find a way to help the democracies, to help Britain and France, <clears throat> because he saw this war looming over America eventually. Uh, in fact, it was one of the greatest problems, I think, to face a president in American history uh, since Lincoln faced the question of whether to re resupply Fort Sumter in 1861. The U.S. had no credibility militarily, so it couldn't really affect events in Europe. Uh, the, and the country was heavily isolationist. Uh, as Fritz mentioned, Charles Lindbergh was leading the isolationist movement. There was great, there was great unhappiness about the American involvement in World War I. A lot of people thought that was a fool's errand on our part. And they thought that giving aid to, uh, to Britain and France at this point was a slippery slope to war again in Europe. So we had the Neutrality Act and the arms embargo uh, to overcome. Uh, but FDR nonetheless tried to build a first line of defense by getting arms secretly uh, to Britain and France. Now he shaped this policy virtually by himself. It's hard to believe today, but there was no National Security Council. There was no substantive staff anywhere in the White House. He and Cordell Hall, the Secretary of State, did it by themselves. Uh, during this whole time, and there, there, there was no intelligence gathering operation. Uh, uh, there was no OSS, no CIA. As often as not, he would get his information from friends or former Harvard classmates returning from Europe. He'd call them in and say, what have you heard? You know, this probably wasn't very effective. Uh, meanwhile, on all, during this time, growing pressure was, uh, pressure was growing on him to state his intentions of whether he was going to run again. And, uh, and he refused to say anything. Uh, but letters and telegrams started coming into the White House suggesting he should 
consider running for a third term. The press tried to pin him down on this, and he said nothing. They started calling him a sphinx. And in December of 1939, the gridiron dinner uh, put on by the journalists in Washington did this, uh, did this little skit where they taunted him mercilessly. He was, he was at the podium, and he said, uh, <coughs> oh, great one, will you run? And then they wheeled out an eight-foot-tall paper mache sphinx with FDR's head at a jaunty angle and a cigarette holder, and, and the place broke up in laughter. Nobody laughed more heartily than FDR. He liked it so much that he bought the Sphinx, and it's now, it's now on display at the, at the FDR library in Hyde Park, where I just saw it. So there are two, two major storylines here. War breaking out in Europe, and will he run? And these two storylines are inextricably intertwined, which makes this story so fascinating. Uh, the, real the real war broke out in May of 1940 when Hitler invaded the Low Countries and France. France fell, and Britain was, was hanging almost literally by a thread. It was the only thing remaining uh, in the way of Hitler's total domination of Europe. Churchill became prime minister, and he pleaded with Roosevelt to send him aid of any kind, and especially destroyers. Roosevelt, against the advice of his own military advisors, including General George Marshall, almost cleaned out the U.S. arsenals to send weaponry to Great Britain. But he couldn't send the destroyers because he thought that, and he believed, everybody believed that would require an act of Congress. Uh, at the same time, this had to sharpen his focus on whether or not he was going to run again because the Democratic Convention opening in Chicago was only two months away. Uh, and this is the proper time, I think, to pause and take a look at his decision-making process which is what I found the most interesting part of this story. Many assumed that he was always planning to run. Uh, many still conclude today he had always planned to run for a third term. Uh, I, I don't agree with that. I couldn't find any evidence to support that. Uh, I think it was not inevitable. Nonetheless, uh, I called who the person that I thought was the greatest living expert on FDR today, and that's William Luchtenberg of North Carolina. And I asked him, I said, what do you think? I mean, you've studied this man more than anybody else. Uh, did he always plan to run, or was this something that came to him late? And Bill Luchtenberg paused and thought about that. And he said, the only thing we know for certain about Franklin Roosevelt is that he never left the presidency voluntarily. <laughs> true enough, true enough. Uh, the other thing that's notable about this is he, he made this decision entirely alone. There's no evidence that he talked with anyone, not Eleanor, uh, not Harry Hopkins, not anyone, between mid-1939 and, and the eve of the convention in July of 1940. Uh, uh, he always waited until the last minute to make a major decision because he thought he, he would get more information and be a more informed decision. That's something that Humphrey also told some of us a lot, a lot of times. Uh, what, did I, what did I learn about FDR in this process? Well, he was famously social, uh, but he was essentially solitary. He was a loner. He was born uh, as, a, as an only child on a remote estate uh, in a rural area, didn't have many friends growing up. Uh, even getting into school and college, he didn't have many intimate friends ever. So he developed a self-reliance that became one of his defining characteristics. He was very confident in himself and very confident in his decision, uh, in, in his ability to make decisions. And for the most part, it served him very well, but not always. Uh, uh, the fact, there, there may have been only one individual on whom he was really with intimate terms, uh, uh, in terms of sharing his thoughts. Eleanor, his wife, said after he died, he had no real confidants, not me either. Uh, Robert Sherwood, uh, the gifted playwright who became a speechwriter for FDR during 1940, uh, and later wrote uh, the classic biography, Roosevelt and Hopkins. Uh, if there's a Bible in FDR literature, this is it. It's a biography of Harry Hopkins, but also of Roosevelt's presidency. 
He said Franklin Roosevelt had a thickly forested interior. Now just think of that image. He had a thickly forested interior, and he didn't want anybody to see through that forest to see what was really going on with it. And I think that's as accurate as anything could be about his inner self. I also discovered, but I was not the first one to do so, uh, his duality. There's a certain duality to FDR. He was bold, perceptive, prescient. He was a very moral statesman, and he set very principled goals for the country. But in pursuit of those goals, he could be cautious, ambitious, sometimes arrogant and manipulative, and even duplicitous. Uh, and this episode is probably the best example in his career of that duality. On July 11th, 1940, uh, four days before the, before the Chicago Convention opened to nominate its candidate for president, he called Felix Frankfurter down to the White House from the Supreme Court, where Roosevelt had put him a year and a half before. Uh, they spent two hours talking in the, in the Oval Study. This is not to be confused with the Oval Office, but the Oval Study uh, on the second floor of the residence adjacent to uh, FDR's bedroom. This is his favorite room in the White House. There's no record of what they talked about, but at the end of the conversation, Roosevelt asked him to draft a memo to him explaining and recounting what he had just told him. Frankfurter said he would do that, but he would also like to request one from Archibald MacLeish, then the, library of, the librarian of Congress, also appointed by FDR to that, that position. Roosevelt said, fine, you can do that, but make it quick and keep it quiet. The next day, Frankfurter returned to the White House with two memos, one from himself and one from, from Archibald MacLeish. And these memos dealt with the question that he and that Roosevelt and Frankfurt had talked about. Was he justified in, in running for a third term, which, which had this sacrosanct character about it in American history, in the, in, given what the United States was facing in Europe uh, in, in the form of an emergency? Uh, they both concluded that he was not only justified in running, but that he had a duty to run, because there was no one else who could do what he did. There was no one else available who had faced a crisis before. Uh, there was no one else who could be elected, although FDR, to the very end, tried to persuade Cordell Hall to run, and Hall would not run. So there literally was not anyone else to do it. I thought these memos were, were the best window into his mind on this subject at this time, that I had them reprinted in full in the appendix. Uh, uh, he did decide to run, and he decided to run because of the war, and because he saw the war coming, and he knew that America needed more time to prepare for it. Uh, this was a stroke of, of real insight on his part, and courage on his part, because he really, I think, had his heart set on retiring. Uh, as much as he enjoyed the presidency, he was going to do this. He couldn't find another Democrat. He offered himself to the party and to the nation, and in a, in a fairly thinly, decide, uh, thinly veiled draft, uh, he, was, he was nominated. And it set the stage for a very dramatic convention because there was a lot of resentment amongst the old-style conservative Democrats uh, about how he had remained aloof above the convention and, and hadn't shared his thoughts with them. And then things were, really went, went haywire uh, and tended to unravel when he picked Henry Wallace as his vice presidential candidate. Uh, he was the first presidential nominee to pick his own vice president. Before that had been the prerogative of the, of the convention, and they took it very seriously, and they, they saw this being taken away from So there was a revolt going on in the convention. And what happened uh, uh, was, was very consequential and revealed a very interesting cast of characters, again involving Frances Perkins. She was in Chicago. She saw what was happening. She called the president, begged him to come to Chicago to put out this, this, uh, this re revolt, uh, and he wouldn't do it. No, he said, I've decided I'm not coming to Chicago, and I'm not coming to Chicago. Well, after going back and forth for a while, they decided that Eleanor should come to Chicago. Uh, and uh, this is what Francis Perkins then engineered, 
very shrewdly uh, and, and very skillfully. And it saved the convention. It saved the convention for FDR from FDR. Uh, and here's what Eleanor said to a hushed crowd that had been all but boisterous until she took the podium. She said, you can't treat this as an ordinary convention in an ordinary time. The next president will perhaps bear a heavier responsibility than any other man has faced before him. Uh, that, was, uh, that was so eloquent and so powerful. Wallace did get nominated. For better or worse, he got, he got the nomination. And it saved FDR, as I say, from himself. And it underscored the role of two strong women in politics for maybe the first time in American history in such a prominent role. And, and Frances Perkins, I think, we all know about what Eleanor did, but Frances Perkins uh, deserves to be uh, much more highly recognized than she is in American history. Uh, there were other fascinating characters. Charles A. Lindbergh, Fritz made reference to him. Uh, they, he was, of course, a great, he was a Minnesotan. He was a great aviation hero, much, much admired for what he did in flying across the Atlantic. Uh, but when he went to Europe, he, he made several trips to Germany. And, uh, and he was, frankly, used by the Germans in ways that reinforced the policies of Britain and France to pursue, uh, to pursue appeasement policies. Franklin Roosevelt toward, told Henry Morgenthau uh, on January of 1940, he said, if I die tomorrow, I want you to remember one thing. Charles Lindbergh is a Nazi. Charles Lindbergh was not a Nazi. But he was used by the Nazis to reinforce his appeasement policy. And uh, he was incredibly naive, and he allowed himself to be used in ways that Roosevelt detested. Uh, Wendell Wilkie. What, what an incredible character Wendell Wilkie was. Uh, he, was a, he was a president of a utilities company. Uh, he had been a Democrat until a year before he started running for, uh, for the Republican nomination for president. Highly charismatic, very articulate, very appealing in every way, obviously a decent human being. He had not only been a Democrat, but he was an isolationist. It was very hard to find any distance between Wendell Wilkie and FDR. Well, needless to say, there were a lot of old conservative, old line conservative Republicans who resented this. And one of those people was a former senator from Indiana uh, named James Watson. He had a, a random encounter in a Philadelphia hotel lobby with Wendell Wilkie that really underscored this whole point. He said, Wendell, I like you. You're a nice fellow, but I don't like your politics. Well, Wilkie said, it's true, Senator. I, I've been a Democrat. Uh, but I'm now a Republican. I'm pursuing this nomination, and I tend to get it. Senator said, well, Wendell, you know, back in Indiana, uh, we let the whore into church, but we don't let her lead the choir the first night. <laughs> kind of made the point. Uh, Wilkie went on to win the nomination, and he became a very effective candidate, although he got off to a slow start. He'd never run for office before. Uh, it... Uh, the, the, but what he did, what he did as a candidate, and then even after the election, is really noteworthy. He came out before Roosevelt did for the first peacetime draft in American history, which was absolutely essential if we were to prepare for what everybody saw was coming. After the election, uh, when Roosevelt figured out that Lend-Lease was going to be his mandate to, to save Britain and to arm allies and the democracies around the world. As Fritz mentioned, it was a landmark, hugely consequential action that, that, that resonated through all of World War II. Wendell Wilkie had dinner with FDR at the White House in the same Oval Study the night before FDR's third inauguration. Wilkie was on his way to London, and he took a handwritten letter to Churchill and to the king uh, from Roosevelt, uh, uh, saying how much uh, he was, they, were, they were supporting what they did. It was a hugely uh, emotional meeting. Ro uh, Wilkie went to uh, London uh, in part as Roosevelt's emissary, was deeply moved by what he saw happening over there, came back and testified in the Congress 
against the advice of every pro other prominent Republican in the country, testified for Lend-Lease. Lend-Lease passed, and FDR never failed to give him full credit for passing Lend-Lease. That was the great example of how bipartisanship could work in that era. Oh, how we yearn for that era. <laughs> he probably jeopardized uh, his chance for a, 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 a nomination again in 1944, and he was very interested in that. But he so poisoned his own well with the Republican leadership in that case that he never had the chance. And then, of course, the other consequential person, really fascinating person here, was, was Winston Churchill, who became prime minister in May of 1940. Churchill and Roosevelt, of course, had met once in 1918 uh, uh, during World War I. Uh, Churchill did not remember the encounter. Roosevelt never forgot that Churchill did not remember the encounter. Uh, and, 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 but, uh, but, but as I mentioned earlier, uh, Churchill was begging for, for destroyers. And finally, Roosevelt figured out a way to get the destroyers during the middle of the election, no doubt, uh, to Great Britain uh, by trading them for bases, British bases in the Caribbean and the Atlantic, so that the net benefit was to the United, to the, to the United States. Well, this had to be a trade. It, it couldn't be just a gift. It had to be a trade. And Churchill was afraid that Roosevelt was going to couch this in such terms that, he would, that it would look like Churchill got taken to the cleaners on this. And he wasn't going to allow that to happen. So there was some a lot of back and forth. And to break the, break the logjam, uh, Roosevelt arranged for a conference call across the Atlantic uh, with Churchill. And he got his attorney general, Robert Jackson, on the phone to explain the law. And Jackson tried to explain how this had to be a trade or a bargain to satisfy the constraints of US law. Well, empires just don't bargain, Churchill said. Jackson replied, well, republics do. <laughs> uh, Roosevelt uh, tried to calm the waters here, and he explained that, uh, that uh, the only way that, uh, you know, unfortunately, I have an attorney general, he says I have to bargain. The prime minister, unmoved, said, maybe you ought to trade these destroyers for a new attorney general. <laughs> anyway, they got it worked out. The destroyers went to Britain. And sending those destroyers in the middle of a campaign, inflaming the, inflaming the isolationists, was a hugely courageous thing on FDR's part. And it not only had the effect of, of uh, getting real aid uh, to the British Navy, but it sent a signal of where the United States really was. It was not neutral in this contest, uh, no mistake about it. And Hitler, among others, took, took note of that. Uh, and in the general election, FDR conducted what we've come to call kind of a rose garden strategy. He didn't really campaign as a candidate. He, candid he campaigned really against Hitler, is what he did, visiting uh, uh, army bases and naval facilities and so forth. Uh, but, uh, but eventually, uh, Wilkie smoked him out and made the war the issue. He said, he said, uh, if you vote for Roosevelt, the boys are going to be on the transports by April. Well, this touched a nerve in the American public. It was just below the surface, because before that point, Roosevelt was leading by double digits in the polls. But, but the polls began to close. Democrats all over the country became very nervous. Roosevelt came under enormous pressure to clarify what he was saying. And he really thought he was going to lose. He went to Hyde Park and closeted himself in the dining room at Hyde Park, where he always received election returns. Told his Secret Service agent to close the door. He didn't want to see anybody. And the Secret Service agent said, even your family? I said, anybody. He was angry. He was certain that he was going down to defeat after all of, all of this happening. And his Secret Service agent said he had never seen him sweat like that and lose his nerve. Well, of course, he won the election. It turns out he won the election quite handily. But he, he saw that he saw that he could have lost. Uh, and there were enormous consequences to this, the fact that he won, the fact that he made this decision to challenge American history, something so sacrosanct in American history as the third term. 
The consequences, first of all, it put in place uh, a man of extraordinary and experienced leadership skills to lead this country through World War II. Uh, he took command of the alliance immediately after Pearl Harbor. It wasn't Churchill, it was Roosevelt that took command of that alliance uh, strategically and in all important ways. It he began the eclipse of isolationism in the United States, which had characterized our foreign policy uh, almost from its beginning. It, it, Lend-Lease and the Destroyers deal planted the seeds of the national security state uh, that we have become today, giving the president enormous authority to project American power around the world. It changed the way we think about the presidency and presidential candidates. Is he or she able to conduct foreign policy in such a way that will really protect the American people? Uh, uh, to me, the, elect, the, the election of 1940 was one of the most pivotal moments in American history. It's up there, I think, in eight, with 1864 when Lincoln uh, won re-election in the midst of the Civil War. Altogether, it was an extraordinary example of presidential leadership. Roosevelt set his sights on saving Britain uh, and giving the United States the time it needed to prepare for war, which he knew was coming. He concluded that he could only accomplish that goal if he challenged 150 years of history uh, and ran himself, and he did. It was a messy process. It wasn't always pretty, but I would argue that it got the right result for the country. We will never get fully into FDR's mind on what he was thinking during this time, because he never revealed it to anyone. But this book is simply my own modest effort to try to penetrate that thickly forested interior that Robert Sherwood talked about. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. I, I really appreciate that and appreciate the chance to come and talk about this subject that I feel so strongly about. Wendy says we have about 10 minutes for questions or whatever, and there are roving microphones around. Uh, who's going to be the, the gutsy first person to try to get into this? Anybody have a question? There's one up there. I hope this won't throw me out. Will, Hil will Hillary wait until four days before the convention? <laughs> <laughs> I would bet against it. I would bet against it. Uh, but uh, while, uh, while I'm on the subject of Wendell Wilkie, uh, <laughs> I want to say how pleased I am that his grandson is here tonight, Philip, Philip Wilkie. <laughs> now, any, any more tough historical questions? Uh, you mentioned uh, George Marshall, and I've always been puzzled about the relationship with the two people, FDR and Marshall. Could you comment a little bit more about that? Well, uh, it's an interesting, it was an interesting relationship. He was first uh, uh, the, uh, the, the deputy chief of staff, then the chief of staff of the army. But he sat in a meeting with FDR early in 38 or 39, uh, talking about whether or not, about how to get aid to, to Britain, to Great Britain. And uh, FDR was making the case he'd really already made up his mind. He was going to try to get 50,000 planes to France every year. Well, it was a preposterous number, way beyond our capacity to do that. And, and everybody was kind of nodding because they could read the body language of FDR. He had decided this. He wasn't really asking for a, for a discussion. Uh, and he, he came back. Uh, he went around the room, and uh, he came to Marshall, and he said, uh, uh, George, uh, don't you think that's a pretty good idea? Well, first of all, nobody ever called him George, not even his wife. <laughs> uh, and he said, and he saw, what, he saw what FDR was up to. He was trying to produce enough aircraft to get half of them over to France, uh, not, not for U.S. purposes. And he said, no, I don't. 
I don't think that's right. It has to be part of an overall strategy. So he had the guts to stand up to Roosevelt and disagree with it. And not just the two of them, but there was a room full of people. And Roosevelt respected that. And he made him eventually the chief of staff. And they had a very good working relationship during most of the war. I've just been reading about the, the first year of the war, where they had, where they had a, uh, uh, they had a uh, disagreement about whether or not to go into North Africa. Uh, George Marshall did not want to send American troops into North Africa. Well, Roosevelt knew that they were not battle-tested. They had to be tested somewhere. They were not ready to invade the mainland of Europe, uh, and FDR overruled them. So they had these strategic and sometimes even tactical disagreements, but they had enormous respect for each other. And I think it was one of the great wartime relationships in American history. Yes, some, yes, down, down here. Um, <clears throat> I, uh, when I was watching the uh, show about FDR, the, um, um, uh, the Ken Burns, yeah, that yeah one. wasn't that good? Um, I didn't know about most of that. And when I was watching that and then it, looking at recent events with ISIS and the growth of ISIS taking over all that stuff and, and I saw a parallel between that and what the Nazis were doing in Europe where they, where they kind of grabbed more and more territory and the U.S. didn't know what to do about it. And uh, it's just, it just seems to be like history sort of repeating itself. And I wondered if you had anything to say about that. Well, history does repeat itself. And it repeats itself here because there are always bad guys around, really bad guys, whether it's Adolf Hitler or ISIS, doing really bad things and totally offensive to all of our sensibilities and to our security. Uh, obviously, there are, there are huge differences because Hitler's aggression in Europe was very calculated, very organized, very intimidating. Uh, so far, ISIS, uh, you know, we've seen in, uh, what it's doing in Syria and, uh, and uh, in Iraq. We don't know where it's going, but I think we're absolutely right to be taking it on because the, these are bad people and they need to be stopped, however we can do it, if we have a capability of doing that. Well, but in terms of what the president has to be deciding to do versus people not wanting independent Yeah, no, these are, th these are why these people, you know, this is why, this, these are the days they earn their pay, when they make these really tough decisions. Uh, and they're not easy. It wasn't easy for FDR. It's not easy today for Barack Obama. Believe me. And Fritz has seen this firsthand. He saw, he, he saw President Carter make some excruciatingly difficult decisions, like whether to send uh, a rescue mission to, to pick, get the hostages out of Iran. I mean, this, these are, they're always going to be really difficult decisions. Uh, Dick, uh, speaking of bad guys, uh, Charles Lindbergh, another Minnesotan, um, he's kind of troubling. I uh, made a speech in Des Moines that was clearly anti-Semitic. Went to Berlin multiple times. He received, you, you know, the whole history. Yes. Received their top award. Yes. Um, I mean, what do you make of Mr. Lindbergh? He was, I think, it was anti-Semitic. Whether he was a Nazi, I don't know. Maybe that's going too far. He was definitely anti-Semitic. I don't think there's any question about it. And the Des Moines speech uh, illustrates that. I think pretty, pretty clearly, conclusively. Uh, uh, he was. Uh, he had these uh, these nativist. Uh, uh, prejudices. Uh, he was way out of his depth when it came when it comes came to international politics. I mean, there was a case for isolationism, uh, but but it wasn't. Uh, it was less and less compelling, and he never really. It wasn't until Pearl Harbor that he gave up, that he recognized what the United States was up against. So I think that and, and Fritz made some references to this. I think very appropriately, uh, he may have been an aviation hero but he was not a hero in anything else. And I, I can say this as a Minnesotan, uh, I don't like the fact that the airport is named after him, frankly. <laughs> yes? So it's well documented that uh, Vice President John Nance Garner and FDR didn't get along that well. Correct. But FDR obviously selected Henry Wallace and allowed him early access to war commissions and stuff like that. Can you comment on FDR's and Henry Wallace's relationship versus Jimmy Carter and Vice President Mondale's relationship? Uh, not, 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 not quite as good. Uh, right. right. He, he was badly staffed, you could say. Uh, 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 no, uh, Garner uh, and Roosevelt really 
disliked each other. And then he, did, he, 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 he withdrew from the field. He went back to Uvalde, Texas and retired. Uh, and Henry Wallace, uh, I don't know much about how that vice presidency actually worked because my research didn't take me that far. Uh, but when it came to 1944, uh, he was not wedded to Wallace. Uh, there was a lot of pressure on him to let Wallace go and to pick somebody else. And he, he, was, he was trying to decide between Harry Truman and Justice William O. Douglas. And the party bosses, the party Pauls, really wanted Truman. And Truman got the nod. Uh, so it was, it, was different, it was different from 1940, where he absolutely insisted on making his decision of who he wanted as vice president. And in 1944, when he, not, he should not have run for re-election in 1944, uh, he, he basically deferred to the party bosses. Hi. Um, where was Eleanor? through all this, through this transition, uh, through this coming into 1940? Yeah. What was happening with yeah. her and them? Well, she was, uh, she was a remarkable first lady, much admired. And, and again, the Ken Burns series uh, really pointed out what she did. She was, in many ways, she was FDR's eyes and ears going around the country because he couldn't travel as much. Uh, <clears throat> but, it, but they did not have a policy relationship. If she wanted to get a message to the president, uh, she would send him a memo uh, like everybody else. But she had her separate basket next to FDR's bed. Just, it was called the Eleanor basket. So her memos got read. And, 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 he, and he, he had a great respect for her. Uh, but they were not on, on intimate terms uh, in any way, uh, politically or otherwise. Uh, and they never talked about the third term issue which I find fascinating. And the explanation is that uh, he knew she wanted to go back to Hyde Park. So what was there to talk about? Uh, uh, she did not think that she should interfere with his decision on such a hugely consequential issue to the nation, that this really was an emergency. And he had to make that regardless of her feelings. That's, that's the kind of res relationship and respect they had for each other. Hello. Thank you for writing the book. Thank <coughs> you so much for Thank that, you for buying that, it. That, I will. That pivotal period. Uh, the election of 1936 was a mandate. Yes. And, I mean, and a runaway. Why was the election of 1944 the close to, closest of the four elections? Uh, because I think uh, he, he was running for a fourth term. The war was almost over. The case for him in that election, I think, was less than it was in 1940, because uh, the, the war was winding down instead of threatening to begin. And uh, he was not an effective campaigner. Uh, uh, he was running out of steam. Uh, obviously, he, he didn't have long to live. Uh, and I think people sensed this about it, and, uh, and, and I think Dewey put up a much stronger campaign uh, at that point uh, against, uh, against Roosevelt. Uh, I don't know. I haven't studied it carefully. Those are just my instincts. Uh, but it was, a close, it was the closest, election president, closest of his four elections, you're right. One of, one of the, uh, the many interesting parts of your, I'm over here, <laughs> book. There you are. Uh, Interesting parts of your book is a discussion of the other Democrats who were hoping that maybe they might get the nomination in 1940, yeah. or hoping that at the least their names might actually be mentioned at the convention, or their names put in nomination. Uh, and so my question has to do with Roosevelt's feeling that he was the only Democrat who could win in 1940. And so what I wonder is, do you think he was right about that? Well, it's a really good question. And first of all, I thank you for reading the book. Yeah, yeah right. It, it, I think it makes you stand out in this crowd here. Uh, uh, but he, back in 1937, 38, he tried to talk Harry Hopkins into running for president. He, he had great confidence and faith in Harry Hopkins, who, of course, ran, the, ran all, the, all the welfare and relief uh, get-to-work programs. But Hopkins had stomach cancer, 
Nobody knew it, but he had stomach cancer, and he just wasn't up to it. Uh, there were others. Uh, he tried to get Cordell Hall interested. Uh, and of course, there was Jim Farley, who did want to run, and eventually did run. His own postmaster general, the, the chairman of his own party, did run, ostensibly because he didn't like the third term. But it was really because he was, he was piqued at Roosevelt, because he had been he thought he had been badly treated, and this is kind of payback time. It was, a, I, I think, a disgraceful part of his career. Uh, and there were others kind of floating around. But FDR didn't think that early that it was only him. It was only at the end. It was only when he pleaded with Cordell Hall to literally the very end to run. Because Cordell Hall, the polls showed, uh, could probably win. And he, he, was, he, he not only supported the policy, of aid to the democracies, but he helped shape it. So Cordell Hall was the last chance. And once Hall said no, very firmly, very conclusively, then there was no one else. Uh, and and uh, that's, that's when he decided he had to run. Thank you. I, too, am reading your book right now and struck by the beauty of language, Thank you. the scholarship. And I'm wondering if anyone has approached you or if you've thought of writing a version of it for young adults, for high school students, as some of the other people have done recently. Well, you're the first one to suggest that. But I <laughs> But, uh, but I thank you for it. I mean, I'm flattered that you should think that this could be a story that might be of interest and have some impact on young adults. I'd never considered that. But uh, given that the research is all done, uh, <coughs> why, why not? Why not? Thank you. The evening has clearly been a success. Thank, thank you very much. Thank you all. Thank you all. <clears throat> okay. Okay. Thank you. What an inspiring lecture and uh, a lot to think about. And before we head out for the reception where books will be sold and uh, Mr. Mo will be there to sign, uh, I'd like to have a word from our president of the Friends of the Libraries Board, Judy Hornbach. I wouldn't clap. I'm just going to hit you up. Um, so. I, I am stunned as always at the library events of which I am so proud to be a part uh, of being here tonight with all of you who have chosen to come here, but with Vice President Mondale and with you, uh, Dr. Mo, and for all the other wonderful people who are here. Would those of you who are members of the Friends of the Library please raise your hands right now? Yes, all right, that's excellent. And if you aren't, you want to be part of this august group, please? And on the back of this little flyer, there is a way you can do it. It's really easy, it's a wonderful opportunity, and you just get to come to the most fabulous things. So thank you very much. Okay, one last uh, public service announcement. Our next event for the Friends of the Library is Minnesota mystery writer Mary Logue. I uh, hope you'll join us for that on December 2nd. And please join us out for a re dessert reception and a chance to uh, acquire a copy of the book if you haven't already. Thank you all for joining us.